Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest updates from the war, analyse Finland's announcement that it will apply to join NATO without delay, and we're joined by Colin Freeman, who's been reporting for The Telegraph from Kiev. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 12th of May, day 78. And today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor, assistant foreign editor Katie O'Neill and Colin Freeman in Kyiv. I started by asking Dom and Katie for the latest updates from the battlefront. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. Uh, I'm on the road today, so apologies if there's any background noise. Uh, firstly, the tactical update. So there's uh, shelling's continued in the in the Donbass region, Russian shelling, um, oh, sorry, around the Kharkiv region. Russian shelling about 40 kilometres to the southeast of Kharkiv is assessed as, as trying to draw that Ukrainian counterattack, the forces in the, the counterattacking to the east and the north south away from that successful uh, successful operation there have been unconfirmed reports that some elements of that uh, counterattack have reached the russian border uh, though as i said these are unconfirmed and as i say the assessment is that that, that, that shelling is, is trying to draw those forces further south the ukrainian general staff say that the the opposition there in the in the north between the sort of northeast of kharkiv and uh, and the border consists of three uh, 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 three battalion tactical groups, but in a poor state of repair. Um, however, they also assess that there are 19 Russian battalion tactical groups in the area of uh, Belgorod, so over the border, Belgorod, 100 k's uh, north of the border, but in, in, that, in that area, and they could reinforce if, uh, uh, if called upon. Uh, the latest UK Defence Intelligence report says that the, the Russian prioritisation of, of its operations in the Donbass has left those elements in the Kharkiv region uh, vulnerable. Uh, they've been subjected to heavy losses and have needed to uh, withdraw in order to reorganise uh, and replenish. Um, it further, it goes on, it says that Ukraine, um, uh, sorry, the, w- the withdrawal is, is a tacit recognition of Russia's inability to capture key Ukrainian cities when they expected limited resistance from the population. Um, so th- that push that we've seen in the north, that, that counterattack, those small counterattacks that have knitted together into quite an, an effective operational push um, has now had an effect um, and could interdict those, uh, could get stuck into those Russian supply lines coming down from Belgorod. And I'll just take a pause there. Thanks, Tom. Katie O'Neill, do you have anything to add to that or should we move on to Finland? 
Yeah, just uh, in terms of, of uh, what's going on today, we also continue to see the steelworks in uh, Mariupol continue to be uh, bombarded by shelling. If it feels like we've been talking about this for weeks, it's because we very much have. Um, it felt like maybe last week that that final line of defence and, and the Ukrainians holding out there was really on its last legs. But uh, there continues to be a number of um, soldiers from the Azov regiment uh, still bunkering down in the steelworks. The Russian tactic there is to sort of seal it off um, because you know they would have to navigate the very uh, complex uh, and intricate a tunneling system that's within that steelwork so their tactic is to seal off the plant and, and try and starve out the soldiers that remain there. Today Ukraine's deputy prime minister called for a prisoner of war uh, swap in exchange for the evacuation of the remaining forces that are in that plant. There has been uh, humanitarian corridors out of the plant that has uh, have been brokered by the UN so they have successfully gotten out a lot of the, the children and, and, and the families that were in the steelworks but uh, a large number of soldiers remain there. They're severely injured. Uh, they don't have access to the medical supplies to treat their injuries. Um, so uh, the, it's been suggested that Ukraine will trade some Russian prisoners of war in exchange for an agreement uh, by the Russians that they would uh, allow for those soldiers to uh, to have some safe passage out. Um, Colin Freeman, who, who we're going to speak to later, wrote um, in the Telegraph today about how those Russian, uh, uh, pardon me, how the Ukrainian um, soldiers feel uh, from the uh, Azov regiment feel very left behind by both Ukraine and the West. Um, You know, they've made the point and, you know, probably rightly so that they have uh, depleted the Russian forces by holding out so long in Mariupol. And um, they've sort of been been left behind, they claim, by the international community. Um, It's obviously a a controversial unit in that it sort of uh, formed as a fringe operation in 2014 uh, in response to the annexation of Crimea. um, And, you know, some of the the links uh, within that group are are to the, the right of things. So sort of the suggestion goes that maybe the sympathy uh, in the international community is, is less so because of that. Uh, yesterday, some of the wives of the uh, soldiers there met with uh, the Pope and appealed uh, with him to, to provide help from the Vatican. Um, and also one of the uh, one of the soldiers there has asked for Elon Musk to provide uh, assistance. Not clear what sort of assistance he would be able to provide, but uh, increasingly growing desperate to those, the troops and the families that are left in that steelworks. Thanks, Casey. Well, let's come back to that uh, with Colin. But first, let's before we do that, let's talk a bit about Finland. Finland, uh, President, the Prime Minister have announced today that they intend to join NATO um, without delay. Uh, Katie and Dom, um, what's the news here? What does this mean? So this came out in a joint statement from the President and the Prime Minister a couple of hours ago. Uh, and just to praise you, they've said NATO membership would strengthen Finland's security and that Finland must apply for NATO membership without delay. This was, uh, this was met... Uh, very swiftly by a response from NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg, who said uh, Finland would be warmly welcomed into NATO and the process would be smooth and swift. Um, equally quickly, there was a response from Sweden's Foreign Minister, Anne Lind, who, who said on, on Twitter, uh, Finland is Sweden's closest security and defence partner and we need to take Finland's assessment into account. So, so I mean, I think there's fairly clear signal there that Sweden are going to follow, follow suit. Um, the Kremlin have responded. So the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, and this is a quote, the expansion of NATO and the approach of the alliance to our borders does not make the world and our continent more stable and secure. 
uh, as we'd expect, I think. But the the framing of that response in terms of this encroachment upon the borders, so expansion of NATO and the approach of the alliance to our borders, again, sort of just reinforcing this narrative that, that Russia are pushing about being surrounded by NATO, that NATO is this malevolent beast that, that con- tries to swallow up countries in order to encroach upon Russia. Uh, that, that continues. Um, Peskov went on, he said that Russia's reaction will, will depend on the degree of advancement of the alliance's military infrastructure to Russia's borders. So perhaps giving a little, a little bit of wiggle room there, saying, saying, all right, Russia would accept Finland um, becoming a member of NATO as long as there wasn't uh, infrastructure placed. I mean, Finland's got pl- plenty of infrastructure, military infrastructure of its own, so, so I don't think we need to worry too much about that. But um, that was probably just, just a, a response from, uh, from Moscow trying to trying to sound as if, it, as if it's sort of allowing this thing to happen. Russia, the foreign ministry in Moscow put out a statement saying Russia will be forced to take retaliatory steps, both of a military, technical and other nature, in order to stop threats to its national security arising. So statements as we'd expect, um, a bit stronger there from the foreign ministry saying it will be forced to take re- retaliatory steps. Let's see, let's see what these are. Um, but nothing... Uh, unexpected, I don't think, and and I don't think there's any greater threat, military threat to Finland or Sweden now. Um, and and if they choose to apply for membership, uh, we saw yesterday from Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and we heard last week when I was with Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary in Finland, that that, that that security guarantees would be extended to both countries between the time of applying for and uh, and being given uh, membership or, or you know, welcomed into the alliance. So statements as expected possibly a little bit stronger um, than uh, from from the foreign ministry as opposed to the Kremlin spokesman Peskov but uh, but nothing that was unexpected or should scare the horses too much. Thanks Tom. Uh, Katie do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, what's really becoming apparent here is that Putin is achieving the the very thing that he said that he was trying to avoid when he launched the invasion of Ukraine. One of his the reasons that he cited um, for the invasion was, you know, trying to uh, stave off the threat of the expansion of NATO. And here we have Finland, and, uh, you know, making very clear noises that they are going to um, apply for membership and, and likely it will be that Sweden will follow. It's interesting, before the invasion, I think it was something like a quarter of, um, of the people of Finland supported uh, NATO membership for their country. And now that's at something like 76%. Um, so yeah, it's just this idea coming home to roost that uh, that Putin has achieved the very thing that he was uh, was so afraid of to begin with. Um, interesting, yesterday when Boris met with both the uh, leaders of Finland and Sweden, they, as Dom mentioned, uh, signed this defence pact in which Boris didn't rule out British boots on the ground in Finland and in Sweden in the event, uh, in the event, pardon me, of a Russian invasion. Um, these are both uh, for uh, countries with quite sophisticated uh, military capabilities. In in Finland, conscription is is still mandatory for young men. Um, Sweden has one of the, the the best and most developed air forces in the west of uh, Europe. So, you know, this is uh, absolutely, as Dom has said, not news that is going to be welcomed by the Kremlin. Last month, they said that they would place troops in Kaliningrad if Sweden and uh, Finland uh, were to sign up to NATO. So obviously something that they are very spooked by. Well, thank you very much, Casey and Dom. Um, be an honour to bring in Colin Freeman now. Colin, you are the, you, you're writing for the Telegraph from Kiev. I'm sure Casey and Dom have lots of questions for you, but can, can I go first? Um, what is life in the city like now? What's the, what's the atmosphere amongst the Ukrainians you talk to? 
Well, put it like this, I've just been at a press conference, I've walked back uh, through the streets to my hotel, it's 29 degrees C, there are people sitting out in bars, there are young Kiev hipsters whizzing up and down the road on uh, um, on, on their e-scooters. Uh, it's, it's like London, but nicer in some ways. Um, you don't really get that much sense some of the time here that there is a war going on. Um, and it's also very different from how it was when I was here back uh, in March when the Russians were still attacking Kiev. And, and you mentioned the war doesn't seem that present. I mean, what signs of it do you see around the city? Are you seeing soldiers? Uh, are people you know, people obviously still talking about it? Are there still strikes in the distance? How, how does it feel to be there? Yes, you, you still see a lot of soldiers around, a lot of checkpoints, um, not so many as there were before, and they're also much more relaxed, the checkpoints. In the old days when we were here at the beginning of March, um, it wasn't unusual to see soldiers with their guns drawn at checkpoints actually pointing their guns at drivers if they thought they were perhaps suspicious in some way um now the now the checkpoints are pretty relaxed really those that are still there a lot of them have been disbanded um uh otherwise there's there's still a curfew on i think from about 11 till 5 in the morning um but most of the sh- a lot of shops are now reopening, and in the evenings, for example, you can go around and you can sense that normal life is returning. There are people hanging around on the streets, and just generally the the the, the sounds and rhythms of uh, of a city enjoying a rather nice early May in some ways. What's the um, morale like of the Ukrainians you talk to? Do they think they're winning this war? How how do they speak of it? Um, I would say it's it's still pretty good, generally speaking. I have not yet come across someone who's kind of openly said to me, oh, I'm fed up with this and we're all tired and um, we've had enough and the government's making a mess of it or, or any of the usual kind of gripes that you might have expected after what you could call perhaps the honeymoon period of the of the first month or six weeks when everybody was kind of pulling together and uh, living off adrenaline there doesn't really seem to have been much of a change from that and of course the the way the ba- the, the 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 war is going the fact that it's going in in Ukraine's favor most of the time against all expectations is is clearly giving everybody a, a huge boost um Having said that, I mean, also you've got to bear in mind that people, when you're when you're interviewing people as a as, as a foreign journalist, I think there is a, a a bit of a sense among people that they will they will kind of project a certain optimistic image. Um, but certainly, I've not seen or read anywhere of anybody those kind of news articles that you might expect to have started coming out about the the weariness and the fatigue and the 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 infighting setting in either amongst people or in in the or or in the government um one thing i will say though is we went to a village um a few weeks ago when i first got here for my second stint in ukraine um which had been under russian occupation and while I was speaking to an old lady there, um, there was a, a loud bang when the lid of her well, which she had propped open in her garden, suddenly blew shut in the wind and, um, and it slammed down with, with a, a rather loud bang that ever made everybody jump a bit. And I noticed it 10 seconds later, she was actually sobbing. 
um, almost uncontrollably, quietly, but almost uncontrollably. And um, she said, I'm sorry, that just reminds me of the sound of war, you know, that thing of people experiencing loud bangs and it setting off unpleasant memories. I had always thought that was a bit of a cliche that you saw in movies or read in novels. It seems to be true. Let's zoom out a little bit from Kiev then. Um, and you've been writing about the Azovstal steel plant, as, as Katie and Don mentioned earlier. What, what, tell us a bit about the story you've written for today. What, what's in it? What's happening down there? Well, yes, um, the, the Azovstal fighters who are still there, um, this is the, um, the Azov Brigade, um, uh, pardon me, uh, the Azov Regiment, they're called. Um, they released some photographs yesterday showing some of their fighters um, injured. Um, several of them had, had undergone amputations of arms or legs. This, they said, was because the conditions in the, um, in the plant are very unsanitary now and they are running out of um, antiseptics and other medical equipment, dressings and so on, to, to prevent infection spreading. Um, and as a result of that, one of the things that happens is that um, if a, a wound gets infected, even a relatively minor wound, um, you often end up having no choice but to amputate. Um, that uh, We did actually cross-check that information with a, um, a doctor here in London um, who's an expert on um, battlefield injuries, and she said the same thing, uh, that if, you're in, if you've got no access to um, sanitary, you know, medical sanitation products, then uh, flesh will often rot, um, uh, not to put too fine a point on it. And um, the only way to stop that, uh, to stop, stop it spreading through the body is sometimes to carry out an amputation further up the limb. Um, uh, so that's what is going on with them. Um, they put these photographs out. Um, we noticed actually that the photographs are of a very good quality, um, almost like they're taken by a professional photographer. And that speaks to something else that's quite unusual um, within the Azov um, uh, brigade. That they they have this exceptionally slick media operation that they've been able to maintain despite being holed up. In, uh, and cornered by Russian forces in this fuel in this steel plant, um, a couple uh, over the, over the weekend, just past, for example, they gave a two-hour press conference online, um, which was simultaneously translated into English. It's the sort sort of thing that you know you can go along to watch the UN do something like that um, in Geneva, and they'll still make a mess of it. Um, and, and this is all being done in, in a place that is completely under siege. As to how they're doing it, um, uh, we understand that they have a Starlink access to a Starlink satellite. That's one of these satellites that's been provided by the um, uh, the billionaire Elon Musk in the US to keep Ukraine connected to the world. Um, and yes, yeah, so they, they certainly know what they're doing media wise. Um, uh, the idea of putting these images out is really to show the the extent of their suffering, and as we heard earlier in the podcast, really the their hope is to um, persuade the international community that they, along with the civilians who've already been evacuated from Mariupol, they too deserve saving. And I spoke to one of the wives of one of the soldiers earlier this week who said, look, um, the civilians have been saved, that's fair enough, but um, my my husband, he's been fighting to defend Mariupol from the Russians in this unjust invasion. He deserves saving too. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Katie or Dom, do you have any questions? If not, I can I can happily carry on. 
Yeah, I, I would be interested to, to ask Colin about Kiev. Um, there was a report yesterday that two thirds of people that uh, were had left Kiev have now returned. Um, is there any sense of where those people went to? Did they flee to different parts of Europe um, or to different parts of Ukraine? And, and how are they finding resuming their lives now? As I understand it, a large number of them went to Poland. Of course, we have some who've been in the UK, although I think most of them are still resident there. Others went to Western Ukraine um, or the Carpathian Mountains up near the border with Hungary. Certainly a lot have come back now, um, according to the mayor of uh, Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, a few weeks ago, he reckoned that Something like a million people had come back um, or so. Kiev is a city of... No, pardon me, about half of the million-odd who had fled have now come back. Kiev is a city of about three million normally. As to where they are now, I don't know. Um, I can tell you that certainly quite a lot of them are in the petrol queues. Um, Petrol uh, is in short supply here at the moment, and we have queues going a mile long, uh, literally a mile long, um, from some garages at the moment. It is a real problem. This, we understand, is because the Russians have been attacking Ukrainian infrastructure. Um, and certainly the, the streets are a lot busier with people, as I, w- I was saying earlier. I, I doubt that that many have headed much further east because that's still the area that is contested. But um, certainly in Kiev, there is very much a sense of um, things slightly returning to normal. And um, we spoke to a lot of people, for example, um, a few days ago who've returned to the suburb of Erpin, which was one of the suburbs that was um, uh, taken by the uh, the Russians and where lots of people have been killed and many buildings raised to the ground, yet nonetheless um, they are returning now to, to try and rebuild their homes and their lives. Colin, can I, uh, can I just jump in for a bit? I, I mean, it's wonderful you described society... Uh, trying to return to some sort of normality. That's great to hear. What was your feeling, though, from the press conference you've been in and the interactions you've had with the government and other institutions? I mean, are they also showing this upbeat tone or are you detecting that there's there's maybe a bit too much bonhomie or what's the kind of mood music, if you read between the lines of, of the stuff you're getting from the government? I'll be absolutely honest, within the government itself, I don't really have any privileged um, access and it's not the, the, the intricacies of um, Ukrainian you know, opposition politics and what one political grouping is saying about the other is not something that I have had time really to take any detailed look at, not, not with half of the country at war and so on. So I'm really not sure. I don't get the sense that there certainly though that um, of, of people griping about Mr. Zelensky or whatever. Um, his, you know, he is very much the Churchill of the moment. And I, th- I think, to be honest, if I was a sensible opposition politician, I'd just probably be keeping quiet at the moment because I don't think there's an awful lot of points to be had in um, in attacking him. No, fair enough. Um, how about the, the resilience then of society? You talk about these long petrol queues. I mean, have you seen are people getting on? Are there any fights in these queues? Are, pe- are people pulling together? And you've been because you're so old. You've been to loads of these things. Um, and you, sorry, sorry, you're so experienced. You've been to been to a number of wars. I mean, do you see that society has that deep rooted resilience that it's going to be able to get itself through this and, and pulling together, or, or, or are there fractures appearing? 
Um, read the petrol queues. Um, it, that is the sort of place where you might expect to see tempers fraying and so on. I think there is a little bit of that, but um, not on any great scale. If you head further east to places uh, towards the Donbass and so on, I'm told you do so sometimes see fights and, and disputes at petrol queues, but that is perhaps understandable because it's people trying to f- get the hell out of a war zone. Um, here, I think there is still a bit of the blitz spirit, um, people generally acting in a relatively orderly fashion. I certainly have not heard any reports of the of the kind of society fraying or social breakdown of the kind that you you might expect in a country after this long um at war although remember we all are are also under martial law here or emergency rule um if anybody does step out of line there is no shortage of soldiers armed with very formidable powers to um to cart people off to jail um or alternatively um uh if, if it's if it's young men who are causing trouble, um, and it usually is in these situations, they can say to them, uh, "Excuse me, where's your um, draft papers? Um, uh, can we uh, can we see those, please? What is your conscription status?" And um, uh, if that happens, there is a there is a chance that they might might end up um, in a barracks in a few days' time. So there there, there are ways and means of keeping discipline on the streets. And um, there's there's also still a um, a ban on drinking. Um, I think in in public after certain hours and so on and, and various other restrictions that are still in place. Um, Colin, I wonder. You know, you were speaking there about the the, the petrol queue, uh, the the queues at the petrol station. Logistically, how have things been for you in terms of finding places to sleep and and travelling around? And has it differed or has it gotten worse from your first stint compared to now? How is it actually just operating there? Yeah, it's it's easier in some ways now than it was um, uh, when I first got here right at the beginning of March. I think I got here on March the 1st um, and Kiev was a ghost town at that point and um, uh, a lot of hotels, especially the big international ones, were actually shutting or had already shut. Um, there was only a few still open, um, but uh, things then settled down a little bit. We stayed in an Airbnb for the first um uh, the, the first fortnight or so, there was there was still remarkably there was still quite a few of them around and going at very low prices as well. You could get a place that was fit for an oligarch and in, you know enormous kind of designer apartments for a song. Um, but now most hotels, um, although not all the big hotels, um, are open. Um, the internet still works perfectly. I'm, I'm talking to you now on. Um, my my mobile phone um somehow and i i must confess i don't really know how despite all the talk of vladimir putin's formidable cyber cyber capabilities there has been no break um or serious disruption to internet service in kiev or the wider area during the time i've i've been here likewise the electricity continues to run um, and um, the, there's, the, there's been no problem ever making electronic payments, contactless payments anywhere either. All of these things, when we first came here, we game planned for those things being taken away. We were bringing satellite phones, stashes of cash, um, spare petrol, all, all, all sorts of things. And with the exception of the petrol, everything here is, is still still completely intact. And Colin, if I may, how informed are the people you're speaking to? They, they've got good access to news, but are they, things are moving so fast. Are they, are they up 
and, and discussing the live debate about, for example, Finland and Sweden uh, potentially applying to join NATO and, and the, the Moscow Victory Day parade on Monday. Are these, are these sort of live issues or are people, is it a bit like here where people are sort of largely bored of politics and just want to get on with their lives? Um, no, I, I don't think they are bored of it. Um, uh, some Ukrainians I've spoken to have said that one of the problems they find actually is that they're just glued to their phones all the time, watching the news, watching Twitter and so on and so forth. Um, sometimes perhaps not so much following the, 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 the big UN press conferences or, or, or whatever, or the, the diplomatic toings and froings, but maybe just looking to see whether grandma in um, Donetsk or something is likely to be getting a house bombed, that sort of thing. But y- yes, they, they are generally uh, um, following the news very closely. Um, they have their own uh, slightly partisan takes on things, I suppose. Um, uh, I, I did ask whether people were going to be following the, the Victory Day parade on Monday and whether it was going to be on, uh, on, on, on show on TV and so on, actually, because we had the idea of maybe going to a cafe or something and observing people watching it and seeing what their reactions were when Putin came on TV and so on and so forth. Um, but um, I, I was told in no uncertain terms that um, this would not be getting shown anywhere around town, certainly not in cafes. Or because people would not be wanting to see it um, for fear that they would be seen as kind of watching it uh, approvingly. I think a lot of a lot of people did follow it, but um, there are certain attitudes that mean that that kind of thing is not broadcast publicly, which perhaps gives you a, a sense of um, how things are here in. Yeah, and just just one final one for me, if I may. The the atrocities that we're seeing or that we saw in Butcher and, and, um, and are becoming apparent elsewhere. Um, are these widely known? Are they talked about? Is it, is it a subject that people maybe not, don't want to talk about for, because it's, it's, it's ongoing and, and they're by no means out of, out of this yet? But, I mean, that, it's such a, such a shocking um, sequence of events that's, that's happened there. I just wonder how, how it, it can't be a topic of conversation around, uh, around town. It, it is very much a topic of conversation and of course where we live in the, in the age of social media so um, every aspect of, of what went on there um, has you know is out there for people to see if they want it and um, I, I think actually with hindsight as well that the Ukrainian government were fairly open about allowing people to see the um, the grim aftermath of that, the excavations, the exhumations and so on and so forth, um, which I think they probably took the view that it served their interests to um, allow the world to, to see that kind of thing, whether we would have done it in somewhere like the UK in quite the same fashion. We might have screened a lot of these places off while bodies were removed and so on. Um, but then again, we haven't experienced something like this. Um, so our attitudes to it are perhaps rather different. Colin, when we had you on before, you talked a little bit about the attitudes to um, foreign journalists and to journalists of different nationalities. Um, have you found uh, that change at all since you're back for your second stint? How, how do people in Ukraine feel about the Brits and, and yourself as a British journalist? Still very polite. Um, uh, Brits especially get a, um, a, a warm reception because 
uh, of Mr. Johnson and his uh, the M laws, the the anti tank missiles that he's provided, um, uh, and then uh, there are there are I think the only problem really here um, the only occasions people get slightly impatient with foreign journalists because there's so many here especially in Kiev I, I don't know how many there are but there's certainly in the low thousands I would say when I first got here there were not that many but um, uh, there are a lot and I, I think the if anything the main problem sometimes is that in hospitals and places like that doctors and nurses have been so besieged with journalists especially six weeks ago a couple of months ago that um, they were unable to do their jobs it got to the point where the government actually began rationing um, the number of media visits to hospitals you had to book a certain time and then you would be given uh, you know uh, maybe an hour or an hour and a half to tour around um, the wards meet a few patients and, and then that would be it, um, which really is fair enough, of course. And, and just on that, you've been writing a little bit about the attitude towards foreign fighters. Um, and I thought you, your piece from early May on the death of Scott Sibley and how the villagers remembered him um, was very powerful. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's, well, we um, Scott Sibley, for um, anybody who uh, is unfamiliar with the name, um, was one of the British volunteers who came out here to fight. Uh, he was a former Royal Marine, um, I think originally from Immingham in uh, near Grimsby in Lincolnshire. Uh, currently, well, I was living in Northumberland. Um, we understand that he was killed down in down in fighting near Mikhailov, um, where Ukrainian forces are engaging on a. I suppose you could call it the southern end of the Eastern Front. Um, and uh, his death was um, significant in in several ways, what, one of which was, of course, that um, we, we think he was the first British volunteer fighter to be killed actually in action um, on the, you know, on, on the front lines. Um, and um, while we were down in Mikolaev, we we spoke to a, a number of other fighters, um, who British fighters who'd been who were down there as well, and also went out to the the, the general direction um, uh, of the area where we believe he was um, uh, killed. It's not been disclosed where he was actually killed. Um, to some villages that were under kind of on-off shell fire, um, and I, I guess perhaps not surprisingly, people there were. Um, uh, were grateful um, for the the contribution of the foreign fighters um, like Mr. Sibley. Um, that I should say they were not aware of who he was or anything. They have other things to worry about at the moment. But um, uh, there was a general sense that um, anybody who's come here to fight and who's then given their lives um, in that fight um, is is very welcome. Uh, there is not much in the way at the moment of memorials or services for um, for, for the foreign fighters when they do die. Uh, that this is a you know this is still a country at war and the, the, there isn't there simply isn't the time to do that. I dare say at some point in the future, um, some expression of gratitude, some more lasting memorial or something like that may, may be erected. And just just on that, um, what's life like for the foreign fighters? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why people might sign up to do this, but what's it like for them once they actually get to Ukraine? It doesn't sound brilliant from what we've heard. Um, we spoke to a number of them. 
And I think what a lot of them expect is that, especially if they're, you know, they've got good skills and so on, they turn up here and you'd expect that, that there is a sort of processing system. There's a, a, an outfit called the, the International Legion that they can join. Um, and I think a lot of them expected that they would be maybe given a few days of training just in, in order to learn how to fit into the Ukrainian military system and then given a gun and then um, off they would go to the trenches and they could do their job there. Um, uh, however, a lot of them have said it, it's just a, a kind of quite frustrating experience. Um, first of all, they, they say they have to, they're expected to sign a contract for three years, which clearly a lot of them don't want to do. Um, and because A, because you don't know how long the war is going to last, and B, because I I'm not sure many of them really want to be bound in um, to service come what may. Um, uh, um, and then, so quite a lot of them have tried to operate outside of that military system because there are other units here, other volunteer units that, that work on a more freelance basis. Um, and so what, what a number of them have been doing is, is, is trying to attach themselves just, I suppose, informally to um, existing Ukrainian units um, through contacts who perhaps know a, a particular commander or, or whatever in order that they can get access to the front lines to fight and so on. However, that, that comes with its own perils because it depends very much on which, fight, which fighting unit you're with and which commander you're going to. And stories abound of people being introduced to certain commanders through various middlemen of varying reliability and then suddenly being told that they're, right, look, here you go, um, here's a mission for you, go up and check check out that position or go and try and take out that sniping um, uh, position or something like that and it turns out to be a suicide mission and obviously because they're not from the area they don't know what they're they're getting into. Um, one guy we spoke to, um, he wasn't a Brit, he was um, somewhere in Europe, um, he was a trained sniper and he said that he had been told to go out and take a, 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 a a series of Russian sniping positions using his his expert marksmanship. And he was given four Ukrainians to go with him, who he was told had some experience as sharpshooters. They turned out to be a group of farmers, he said, all armed with old hunting rifles. And at that point, he just sort of said, well, stuff this up. I'm, I'm not going to go and risk my life on, on that basis. Um, there's been others who've talked about being asked to go on missions with being given guns but no ammo or ammo but no guns and so on. And, um, yeah, also just the, the notion of kind of trying to haphazardly fit yourself into a, a, um, a, a front line where other units may be unaware of what you're doing or whatever. You know, it, it's absolutely fraught with peril. Um I have spoken to some soldiers who've had a, a bit more of a straightforward battle experience, um, who've managed to get into the front lines. Often they're people with a bit more experience or perhaps just um, uh, uh, slightly better contacts. Equally, to, to kind of try and get the other side of this, we, um, we did speak to a, um, uh, one soldier who said, uh, who was a try not to complicate things too much, it was part of what's known as the Georgian Legion here. This is a group of soldiers from Georgia, as in the, the Georgia in the Caucasus, not Georgia in America. Um, 
who the, Georgia itself was invaded by, partly invaded by Russia in 2008. And as a result of that, they sent a unit, or a, a, they created their own volunteer unit here to fight in Ukraine when Ukraine was attacked in 2014. Um, and he said, look, um, we, we, have a, we have a lot of experience with foreign volunteers here at the Georgian unit, but um, you, you've got to realise it takes time. You can't just rush in here and expect to be up shooting at the trenches in the Donbass within three weeks. Um, we have to do vetting, we have to do training, there are procedures to follow, and also there's just a bureaucracy and these things, you know, the, the, these things have hiccups and red tape. You just need to be patient. And um, uh, that is perhaps what some of the British soldiers and other volunteer soldiers don't really perhaps have the capacity for. They, you know, it's a big decision to come out here and they want to get in and get, get fighting and get, get into the action. They don't really want to be hanging around for three to six months waiting for that time to come. Um, Another point that they made, um, actually, is that this is an artillery war, as in big, heavy guns firing at each other from miles away. And if you're a soldier in this war, you're likely to be spending a lot of time in a trench, getting raped with artillery raining on you and never seeing another, you know, a, a, the face of the enemy to actually have a pop at until perhaps such time as the enemy positions are overwhelmed by your own artillery, at which point you might, you know, get the chance to charge a trench or something like that. And it might be pretty full on, but you could be waiting for a long time to have that opportunity. And I don't think that's necessarily what the many of the volunteers quite appreciate when they come out here that the actual chances of combat are you know which which are always always limited in war anyway it's only one one in ten soldiers maybe who get the chance to really stick it to the enemy that the actual chances of combat here are probably pretty slim just one very quick final question from me before I'll let Katie and Dom jump in. Um, just talking to these foreign fighters, do you get a sense of where they're from? Do do Americans predominate? Are there lots of Brits? Are lots of people from the Caucasus? That they are from all over the world. Um, there are quite a lot of Brits and Americans. There's quite a lot of Europeans. I've met um, French, uh, French. Um, Germans. Um, there was a, a chat. I think there's a there's a chat from India here. Um, one or two Spanish. Um, that they they are certainly an international legion. I think there's some Koreans as well. Do if there is a, there are certainly a lot who are quite experienced militarily. Um, then there are what are known as um, Call of Duty warriors or airsoft warriors, as in the 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 sort of fakers and the fantasists who've either got no real military experience or um, uh, or, 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 or simply making it up. There's a few of them as well. Um, uh, so that they are a mixed, they are a, a, a very mixed bag. And then there are quite a few who. Probably are pretty experienced, but who who keep themselves to themselves and, and you know have no wish to speak to the media. On the other hand, there's those who are only too keen to speak to us, and I think who are possibly hoping to emerge, um, uh, you know, sell their stories to the media or whatever, or um, film their action, some of their frontline actions on Twitter and so on and so forth, and perhaps come home to be offered a contract as the, the new Aunt Middleton or whoever um, on some TV, you know, soldier action show. Well, thanks so much, Colin. I don't know if there's any more questions from Katie or Dom. 
what's the language of the war? I mean, is, is English the common language it's used, or has it, has it, is it Ukrainian, or has it developed its own sort of patois? There's sort of various, various term, terms that are used and understood, no matter what the nationality um, of the, of the I, people. As I understand it, certainly for the training purposes, all the training is done in English. Yeah, that is the international language, um, unless you have a volunteer who speaks Russian or Ukrainian, which, which is pretty unlikely, I think. Um, I would certainly imagine, though, that for those soldiers who are actually out in the trenches, um, you know, not ideal to be unable to speak Ukrainian or, long, or Russian um, when when it's when when the going gets tough. Because by while while quite a lot of Ukrainians do speak English, um, especially amongst the officers and so on, um, the average Ukrainian squaddy um, no. And that would not be great if, um, uh, you know, if you if you're in a situation uh, uh, where shells are landing and people are shouting directions at you. Well, thank you very much, Colin Freeman. Thank you, Dom and Casey, for your questions. Um, could I have your final uh, thoughts for the next few days? What should we be looking for going into the weekend? Um, and just um, one more question from me, actually, Colin, on life in Kiev. Are people excited about Eurovision? Is that a big thing? Um, uh, are Ukrainians talking about it? Will there be parties to watch it? Ah, um, <laughs> as far as I'm aware so far, the only people who are potentially excited about Eurovision um, are the office who who did ask me to um, check out what was going to be going on in Eurovision, and um, I have not yet got round to doing so. So uh, I'm afraid it's going to have to be a question of watch this space. Katie and Dom, what should we be looking for in the next few days? From my point, it's, the, it's those tactical advances to the, the north and east of Kharkiv. If Ukraine are able to continue to knit them together into a broader operational effect and push Russia back to the border and really then start digging into those supply lines coming down from Belgorod, that will be very, very significant indeed. So keep an eye on, on the north and east of Kharkiv. And Katie O'Neill. As ever, we continue to see the uh, the last remaining holdout in the Azovstal steelworks. Um, it uh, it doesn't seem likely that those troops can can hold on for for too much longer. So I imagine there will be uh, some sort of conclusion uh, in Mariupol in that plant uh, in the coming days. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Alice Heary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.